0: If you had to lose one sense, what would it be? Well, not hearing of course, or you wouldn't be able to listen to this podcast. My guess also is that most people's response would not include sight. It's widely acknowledged that sight is our primary sense as human beings. Globally as a species, our health is improving and life expectancy is rising, but progress is far from universal with chronic diseases on the rise caused by the way we live today. Our eyesight is also at the mercy of modern life and is actually getting worse. Ironic when you consider how visually orientated modern culture is. So what can we do about it? To discover more about how technology is changing the game when it comes to eye care, join me, Matt Millington, as we plug into Invent Health, a podcast brought to you by technology and product development company, TTP. Today we ask, what role does science and technology play in the fight to prevent sight loss, and even cure blindness. Hello, and welcome to Invent Health, a podcast about the future of health and technology. In today's episode, we're looking into our eyes, the two not-quite-spherical organs tucked into the front of your skull, which for most of us, inform how we perceive the world around us. Ophthalmology is not only tricky to pronounce on microphone, it is one of the busiest and most innovative sectors in healthcare. Hardly surprising when you consider how important our sight is to us. You might put off getting that pain in your knee checked for a few months to see how it goes, but if your vision takes a hit, you're going to go and see someone immediately. What is surprising, however, is the lack of awareness of our eye health in our modern lives. Somewhat paradoxically, while many of us are ever more conscious of our physical health and well-being today, eye health across the world is not in such a good place. In fact, many ophthalmologists will tell you that eyesight across the world is in fact deteriorating and we are woefully short of ophthalmologists to deal with the increasing need. When I heard this, I wanted to know why. Is our eyesight really going in the opposite direction? What is being done to combat it? To get to the heart of the issue, I spoke to some of the best people in the field, starting at the top with one of the most celebrated ophthalmologists on the planet, Dr. Jose Alain-Sahel. His list of achievements and accolades is too long to list fully here, but as well as being the chair of the Department of Ophthalmology at the University of Pittsburgh School of Medicine, he's also the director of UPMC Eye Centre and a professor of ophthalmology at the Sorbonne in Paris. I asked him to tell me a bit about what he does and how he's seen the field progress over his long career.
1: I'm a clinician. I've been working in the field of uh, retinal disease for many decades. So all these patents actually have nothing involved with uh, 200 patents, 40 families of oh, patents. Wow. And uh, these patents have uh, to do with uh, vision restoration, neuroprotection, uh, retinal imaging. But they all revolve around the same thing, which is finding uh, new cures or new ways to better diagnose uh, retinal disease and provide treatment of patients. Special focus has been on a group of blinding diseases called retinitis pigmentosa and others that are due to genetic mutations that lead to a progressive and irreversible loss of vision. Wow. Is the progress, has it been constant or have you seen a a kind of rapid increase in innovation over the last 10 years or so? Progress is never constant. A few lucky days, a lot of but not lucky days. Uh, Then why are so many things happening now, I think it's more or less the result of 15, 20 years of very hard work that nobody were really looking at. So what people are seeing now is the result of 30 years of work by many many people uh, all across the world. Before we got
0: into the specifics of his own work, I wanted to know more about what Dr Sahel thought about the power of sight in general. Is it indeed our most vital sense? He of course responded by citing 18th century French philosophy.
1: This question uh, actually dates back to philosophy in the 18th century. There is a French philosopher called uh, Diderot. He wrote a a famous letter called The Letter on the Blind. And for him it was a metaphor, a philosophical metaphor of freedom. Light and freedom were equivalent. But he took the analogy of vision, which is if someone has never seen a a ball or a cube, Mm -hmm. and all of a sudden is able to see, Will he have to grasp the object to make sense out of it? Or will he be able to recognize the shape independent from mm. the senses? Which means that you are receiving the channel from vision or from, sen- from touching, for example. Is this the same thing? Can you make sense out of it? It's a beautiful scientific question and it's a beautiful uh, philosophical question. Dido went to jail because of that, because it was a metaphor of freedom. So he was telling that people that have not been living in freedom can't understand it and this is what all the, all the dictators are using, almost predicting a lot of things in the 20th and 21st century. Sight,
0: for José, is more than just a sense. The right to sight is something akin to the right to freedom. We'll be returning to Dr Sahel later on, but now, moving on from revolutionary France, let's take a look at the state of ophthalmology in the 21st century. How have our modern ways of living affected our site, and how do we tackle this today? For this, I turn to one of our experts here at TTP, Catherine Wyman. Catherine is a mechanical engineer by background who has developed a variety of medical devices and now leads TTP's eye care team. Catherine and the team focus on addressing unmet needs across ophthalmology, including in the areas we're discussing today. So Catherine, where are we at with eye health on a on a national and an international level?
2: Uh, so both nationally and internationally, it's not looking too great. Uh, if we start with the international, um, the WHO uh, released a report in 2019 called the World Report on Vision. And in that, they gave that there are at least 2.2 billion people in the world who have some form of vision impairment or blindness. Um, and that's a lot of people. Um, and And within that, what is perhaps most striking is that there are a billion of those people have something that is either preventable or they're waiting for treatment and it could be prevented. Mm. So those are people for whom there are technologies, um, there are treatments that we could do something for them. And at the moment, they're not getting access to that. And that means that there's a real challenge um, to be had in, in improving on the situation of those people. And what's also scary is that that number without investment is going to get worse. So there are increasing numbers of people who are getting different types of uh, diseases just through t- to things such as aging mm-hmm. um, and our modern lifestyle.
0: Mm-hmm. So that's that's a lot of people to be suffering. And I guess any th- any impairment with your eye is an impairment on your on your lifestyle. That's pretty daunting. That's a lot of different areas. What, what are the most kind of pressing things that we should be focusing on right now?
2: So in terms of uh, just increasing the numbers of ophthalmologists we have around the world, we haven't got enough. Um, and, and that's always going to be difficult. So if we look at some of the areas that are almost up and coming diseases or problems, um, perhaps the one that is most striking is myopia. So this is where, over the course of your childhood, uh, you become increasingly short-sighted often. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think we're all comfortable with the idea that some people have to wear glasses, but um, there are problems associated with having myopia that come about in later life. So if you have the severe form of myopia, so high myopia, Mm -hmm. you're much more likely to get a lot of issues later in life. Mm -hmm. So uh, things like retinal detachment, so the the photosensitive layer of cells at the back of your eye coming away from the back of your eye um, and therefore you not being able to see. Um, and there are other problems associated with that. And I think the by 2050, it's forecast that half the world will be myopic. Mm-hmm. Um, and there are a lot of knock-on effects to that, not just quality of life, but this whole issue of in later life, a lot of those people could end up with blinding conditions
0: So I mean wearing a pair of glasses it's not that difficult for most people. lots I think glasses are the most most adherent um, therapeutic available. What other things can be done about myopia It, it seems like it, it just happens because of our lifestyle, our genes what's what's going on and how do we fix it?
2: I think one of the really interesting things about myopia is that actually we don't understand it very well at the moment. So we know some of the things that are associated with causing it, Mm. um, but not the definitive this causes it. Mm -hmm. Um, It has a genetic component, so um, some people sadly are almost predestined, as far as we can see, to to have it for that reason. But it's also associated with uh, things like spending time outside. Mm. So spending a couple of hours outside a day when you're a child um, is very important and it's probably to do with the higher light levels. Mm. Um, and there are a number of different theories about what is causing it and people are testing those at the moment. Um, but it's, it's, it's a space in which there is a lot of research um, and, and thankfully a lot of interest um, from people working in the eye care space.
0: We're living longer, less people are smoking and drinking to excess, and we're more aware of our mental health and what our lifestyle choices are doing to our bodies. But when it comes to our eyes, the picture changes. My mother always said that staring at a screen all day is probably not doing me any good, and that I'd be much better off going outside to play. Well, it turns out she was right. Extended screen time and the resultant need to spend lots of time inside is causing an increase in myopia on a global scale. And while this might seem relatively harmless, glasses after all do sort out short-sightedness pretty well, myopia brings with it higher risks of other issues later in life. And the role on impact of this is massive, not just on ourselves, but on our healthcare services. I wanted to find out what this means for people working on the front line of ophthalmology, dealing with patients every day. So I got in touch with one of the top ophthalmologists working in the UK.
3: So my name is Pierce Keaton. So I wear a number of different hats. I am a consultant ophthalmologist at Moorfields Eye Hospital in London. And so at Moorfields, I specialize in the treatment of retinal diseases. Um, the hat that I wear as an academic is that I'm an associate professor at University College London at UCL.
0: Pierskeen has worked with Google's DeepMind to develop artificial intelligence algorithms for the earlier detection and treatment of retinal disease. To give you an idea of how significant this work has been, he was subsequently included on the Evening Standard Progress 1000 list of most influential Londoners, and in the top 100 most influential people in the world of ophthalmology in the Ophthalmology magazine. You're more than qualified to ask my very general question of how is our eyesight at the moment,
3: collectively? Wow, that's a good question. That's, I've never been asked by that before. I think that you know the reality is that ophthalmology is one of the busiest of all the medical specialties, both in the National Health Service in the UK and more broadly. And so one of the things that is always surprising to other doctors in other medical specialties is just how busy ophthalmology is. In fact, since 2017, ophthalmology has overtaken all other medical specialties in the NHS. Nearly 10% of all clinic appointments in the NHS are for eyes, and that constitutes nearly 10 million appointments per year. And furthermore, that's a number that's been rising in recent years. And to put it brutally, we're drowning in the number of patients that we need to see and treat with with sight-threatening high disease.
0: Is our sight getting worse collectively,
3: or are we becoming more aware, or is it more nuanced than that? So the first, I think, massive driver is we just have an aging population. And people are getting older, people are living longer, obviously, and I think are much healthier as they get older now. I have patients in their 80s and 90s who are artists, they're yeah. they're just living really full and meaningful lives. And I think with that people are less likely to be resigned to losing their sight as they're getting older. Yeah. And so they come in and they want to get seen and treated. There was a study in the British Journal of Ophthalmology that was published just last year which looked at the prevalence of age-related macular degeneration or AMD. Commonest cause of blindness in the UK by far. And actually, they estimated that uh, more than 25% of people in Europe over the age of 60 have the early or intermediate forms of macular degeneration. To me, that's staggering. 60 is not old. These are, this is hundreds of millions of people potentially. I think. that goes hand in hand with other diseases. As the world's populations are getting more affluent, we're increasingly having to deal with conditions such as diabetes. And of course, that affects people's eyes.
0: The reality for people working in ophthalmology is that they're busy. Our modern lifestyles, be it the increase in diabetes or prolonged screen time, is having a profound effect on global eye health. And the latter of these may only rear its head properly in the years to come. The burden on health service is quite incredible and, as both Catherine and Pierce told me, there aren't really enough doctors around to keep up with it. But, as with anything to do with healthcare, the ways in which clinicians and scientists are rising to the challenge does leave me feeling optimistic for the future. I wanted to know some more about the ways in which we're actually treating eye issues today. What techniques, what methods, what are the tools? I went back to Catherine for some answers. So there are no drugs for myopia.
2: It's an interesting one. There are there are almost drugs for myopia. So atropine um, is being used for uh, treatment of myopia in some areas. Um, it's still in trials, though. But it's almost been used before. It's been proven, um, and that is in the form of in the form of drops normally. Um, and there are other treatments like uh, different kinds of contact lenses um, and sort of regimens, such as spending more time outside. Mm-hmm. So there are there are things in the pipeline, um, and but one of the most difficult things, actually, um, if you talk to people who are particularly active in dealing with myopia, is actually getting the message out there that there are these things that are starting to be available to children and their parents. Um, so it is it is almost a marketing challenge as well as a technical one.
0: Right, um, talking about, you mentioned drops, is that the most common way of getting drugs into the eye? How do you actually treat the eyeball with drugs?
2: Lots of different ways of getting drugs into the eye. Um, as you say, uh, surface delivery. So eye drops is very common. um, And in some ways, that is the nicest way of getting drugs into the eye. It's not invasive. Um,
0: It's not that easy to do though, is it?
2: It's not that easy. And that is one of the challenges associated with it. Um, There are conditions such as glaucoma, which Mm -hmm. is uh, predominantly um, associated with you have high pressure within your eye and that can end up causing you to go blind um, particularly in later age it comes about um, one of the main things for that is you have drops and it's difficult to deliver drops. You have to lift your arm up, you have to tip your head back, you have to get the aiming. And if you have any sorts of um, sort of mobility impairments, that becomes much, much more difficult. Mm. Um, so working on ways to improve how you get drops into people's eye can have a huge uh, public health benefit mm. and a massive impact on people's lives yeah. for something that in terms of a technical challenge is really not too hard.
0: Yeah. Is there is there quite a lot of wastage? I, um, I mean, I'm coming from the perspective of trying to get drops into my kids' eyes, and you seem to pour most of it down their cheeks. I, if we're talking about more expensive drugs, is is wastage a problem with with using drops to deliver them to the eye?
2: So, waste wastage is not the key problem, um, but it is one of the problems. Mm-hmm. Um, if you, if you are putting too much of a substance into your eye, it runs down your face, it's not very comfortable. Um, if that was expensive, you're going to have to refill your prescription mm-hmm. more frequently. Mm-hmm. Um, the thing with wastage um, is at least that person is using it. Yeah. Um, the main problem in many ways is actually getting people to use their drops. Um, in the case of glaucoma, what makes it so difficult to make people use the drops is that you don't see from day to day the deterioration in your eyesight. Mm. And that's actually often the challenge that you find with uh, delivering anything into the eye for patients. So there is uh, a very frequent regimen um, for intravitreal injections. So that's uh, injections into the back of your eye Mm. um, for wet age-related macular degeneration, which is one of the common forms of um, blinding diseases in um, more elderly people. Mm. um, That is a real burden on the patient.
0: How how regularly would you need to take a, a needle into the eye, essentially?
2: So the trials historically have always been suggested uh, a, a, one month. Mm-hmm. Every month you're going in. It's now becoming slightly less frequent, and there are many people driving towards having even less frequent. Um, and there are a few different technologies um, around that are enabling how we reduce the frequency of those deliveries into the eye.
0: So even if the progress ophthalmologists are making is incredibly impressive, and it really is, it doesn't change the fact that the burden on patients is still massive. The invasiveness of some of these procedures is really significant to patients who require them frequently, and that can't be written off. Pearce agreed that despite the innovation, something needs to be done to decrease the burden of care on patients.
3: We have such amazing advances in ophthalmology. we very technologically driven, very innovative specialty. Cataract surgery, which is now the commonest surgery in all of the NHS, is done through incisions that are a couple of millimetres in size, is done with ultrasound or with laser in some cir- circumstances, and can often be done in, the, in 10 minutes, 15 minutes, potentially. Transformative effects. But actually, there is still a huge burden on patients. If you have AMD, the, the problem is that you often need to come into the hospital every four weeks, every six weeks, every eight weeks to have these injections. And maybe you need to do that over the course of 10 years or more. Maybe you need to do mm-hmm. that for the rest of your life as things yeah. stand. And so that's a still a significant burden on people's lives. And so one of the things that I really believe and I'm, I feel passionate about is the promise of new technology and the promise of innovation and the promise of artificial intelligence in particular is how can we bring world leading expertise out of the hospital into the community and maybe into the homes of patients in the future. I think that's the next big transformation we're going to see in the next few years.
0: It's actually digital technology and algorithms that are set to make one of the biggest impacts to eye care in the future. But how? How can something inherently digital have an impact on our physical eyes? According to Pierce, AI could have the answer.
3: I think I would say, and I think it's really important to emphasize um, to the listeners that everybody's excited about AI and there's a lot of hype around it. But at the end of the day, it's not magic. This is a tool that we know works in a certain way. And if it's trained on appropriate data, it will work in a, some specific application in the future. And it won't work in, in, in other applications. Mm. Second thing to highlight is we're at a stage where we've started to see the promise of the promise of AI outside of healthcare. In the last decade, we've seen it in the tech industry. We've seen it in the way that we can do speech recognition, voice assistance, et cetera, et cetera. And then we've started to see that percolate into healthcare just in the last five or six years. We still are trying to figure out how we can make them robust, how we can make them reliable, how we can make them safe, and how we can make them fair. And I don't think we have all the answers to those questions just yet. You mentioned earlier
0: that the NHS is under a huge amount of pressure with a massive increase of referrals and people coming in. Where does AI play a part in lessening that problem?
3: So I think certainly all the evidence suggests, and I think it's fairly intuitive, that earlier detection equals earlier diagnosis equals earlier treatment. Increasingly now, in community optometry settings, you have very advanced imaging devices that are being deployed. In particular, you have um, advertisements from from some of the major optometry chains advertising a type of scanner called OCT. OCT. Uh, which stands for Optical Coherence Tomography, essentially like an ultrasound, but it measures light waves instead of sound waves, and it gives really high-resolution images of the back of the eye, of the retina. Mm-hmm. Now, you can, when you go and have a routine eye check, it's very common that you'll be offered to have an OCT scan done as part of that check. And let me be clear, I think that's amazing. Now, the problem, though, that sometimes those uh, checks are being offered without a lot of expertise to interpret the scans. Right. And so any kind of deviation away from normal gets referred into the hospital and it's usually referred urgently. Does this patient have AMD? Are they going to go blind? In 2016, when I first started a lot of the work in AI, fields, we had 7,000 urgent new patient referrals as possible wet AMD, commonest cause of blindness. Now of those 7,000 urgent referrals, 800 of those actually had this sight threatening disease well wow. now for me then the promise of ai at least initially is can we use these what are called deep learning systems on these devices to be able to sort of identify those patients with the most sight-threatening disease, to prioritize those patients to get in front of someone like me at the soonest possible time, and the patients who really don't have anything seriously wrong with them, that they can, it's okay for them to wait a few weeks um, or even a couple of months to be seen if it's not serious.
0: We have got an OCT scanner that is able to push data up into the cloud or wherever, and we've got algorithms passing that data, what kind of stuff can we do? What kind of issues can we look for? Because I've heard somebody recently said that actually, when we're looking at the eye, we're not just looking at eye health. We're potentially looking at the eye as a window, it sounds very poetic, mm. but a, a window into the
3: health of the rest of your body. I think that you've put your finger on one of the, the hardest topics in, in the field one of my colleagues, Alistair Dennison, coined an entirely new term to describe it. We call it oculomics. And it's using the eye as a window to the rest of the body, as a, as a window to systemic health. And in fact, that paper in Nature Biomedical Engineering from Google Brain, that was also able to tell whether the person smoked or not from the retinal photograph. It was also able to, to, to tell their blood pressure. And it was also able to like make a prediction of their body mass index. And so quite powerful things that it was able to tell a member of our research group, a guy called Siegfried Wagner, is working with me to lead a study called the ALTS Eye Study, It stands for Alzheimer's Eye. So we know every person who's had eye scanning done at Moorfields who has gone on to develop Alzheimer's or had a heart attack or a range of other neurological and cardiovascular conditions. Now, where we're going with that is Can we predict people who might have a stroke five years ahead of time and then therefore do something about it? So maybe the promise is you go to your optician and you have your eye check and it says, oh, Pierce, you better check your cholesterol. I think that might be worth looking into, or it picks up some other issues that you might have. And maybe that even becomes something different in the future. Maybe that's, maybe that's in a supermarket. Maybe it's in, maybe it's in your GP. Maybe it's in your home in the future. And so I think certainly, you know, Matt, you've, you've put your f- finger on an area that we hope to see some big breakthroughs in the coming years. I, I don't like the
0: term, but that is game changing stuff that, that opens up, yeah, speechless and grinning.
3: <laughs> yeah, no, it's super cool. There's exciting stuff coming in the next few years.
0: Currently, the application of AI in eye care is predominantly about early diagnosis and prevention. It's a great way to catch issues early and address them before they become too severe. The great thing about AI is that it is in theory scalable and potentially far-reaching. But AI, as exciting as it is, is not the only place where innovation in ophthalmology is going to come from. There are innovations which are seeking to go beyond prevention. In the coming years, we're going to see treatments which will literally bring back sight. A potential cure for blindness? Here's Catherine again.
2: So we are starting to see um, across healthcare, um, as I'm sure you're very well aware of, um, cell and gene therapies coming through. Um, And what you have uh, with cell and gene therapies is often the one-time treatment. And that's very exciting. Uh, So if instead of having your once-monthly or once-two-monthly, once-three-monthly injection, you can have perhaps a slightly more uh, invasive procedure, or not as invasive a procedure, but only once, that is incredibly freeing. Instead of going in and all the problems associated, not just with having a needle stuck with the eye, but just getting to a hospital, being able to have your one-time therapy or few-time therapy is, is very exciting.
0: This is where we return to Dr. Jose Alan Sahel. Why? because he's actually been working on site restoring technologies for the past four decades. Those 200 patents he mentioned earlier combine some of the most fascinating treatments in all of medicine. The most exciting of which is undoubtedly in cell and gene therapy. I understand a lot of your work is centered around cell and gene therapy. So for the uninitiated, could you tell us what that, that is? But also for my benefit, What is the difference between cell and gene therapy?
1: Yeah, so it's very different. Cell therapy is easier to explain. It's really replacing the cells that are missing. But when these cells are dead mm-hmm. or non functional, there is no vision because it doesn't even start. Uh, the light is not perceived and not transformed. So the idea is to replace these cells. But uh, one of the key issues is uh, it's not only replacing them, but it's reconnecting them. And we don't understand fully how the cells are connecting yet. We know a lot, but we don't know everything. So sometimes we are using another property of cell therapy, which is more or less cells talking to each other and supporting each other. We call that also Romeo and Juliet effect. So one cell is dying, the other is dying because it's missing the first one. So you are replacing the one that is missing to support the one that is still there and wants to survive. So this is the the basis of cell therapy. Very promising, but our main focus has been on uh, uh, gene therapy, one to fix the gene defect. So you have, like, a, as you know, the gene, the gene uh, code is uh, a DNA, so we have this code in all the cells. And uh, if just one typo in one word, uh, in, out of two millions of, uh, trillions actually of words, can lead to dysfunction and uh, can lead to cell degeneration. So you can fix that either by adding the normal word. Or it can be edit and cut and replace with uh, CRISPR-Cas and all the gene editing technologies and others are doing. But the goal is to, to fix the mistake in the genetic code and to provide the cells with the opportunity to function normally. So optogenetics is a very unexpected approach. Yep. It came from a field that nobody would look at in, the, in medicine, the biology of algae. And a very basic scientists in the late 90s and early 2000 tried to understand why algae are responding to light, why they move or shrink in response to light. And they identified that they have a specific mechanism. They have a group of proteins that are couple, coupling uh, light absorption and electrical signal. And they thought immediately that this would be great to manipulate neurons, but because the right. retina by definition is absorbing light and creating an electrical signal, a few people Mm -hmm. including us thought maybe this could be used to restore vision in patients that lost the ability to respond to light. So a group in uh, Detroit started that and published a paper in 2006 where we tried to target uh, ganglion cells, the cells that are forming the optic nerve with a protein that was one of the first of these proteins that had been identified. They had pretty good data in animals. They started a clinical trial. No results have been published so far after more than five years. Most likely, the amount of light that is needed to activate these cells, these proteins, is too high, and uh, this is probably not going to be efficient in real life in patients. And uh, although everyone thought that this idea was totally crazy and it made no sense, we decided to work together on developing this approach. The therapy comprised three parts. One of them was to find what, protein we want to use to be able to activate the cells. And we had to define the cell type we wanted to activate. We decided to focus for clinical transition on ganglion cells. And uh, what we realized is that these proteins normally require massive amounts of light to be activated. And this is not safe. You can't provide the retina with so much light, it's toxic. So we decided to shift to a protein that would be more sensitive to light. And we identified one that had been uh, developed by uh, Roger Chen, the Nobel laureate in California, called REAC, shifted in the Mm -hmm. red. And the efficiency of light in this spectrum is better, which means that you need far less light to activate So we decided to shift to that. Mm-hmm. And then we did all the work in vitro and then in animal models to find out whether we could activate these cells and create a meaningful signal. Mm-hmm. So all of this is published, mm-hmm. our many papers we published on that, and we patented all of that. So you, you mentioned a meaningful signal... Am I to understand that the
0: eye, or at least the optic nerve, and therefore the brain, would understand this as sight, or is this something different?
1: So this question is twofold. At this stage, when I call a meaningful signal is a signal that you can record from tissues that is uh, similar to what you are recording in normal tissue. So we, are, we have a lot of knowledge on the physiology of vision, so we know exactly how each cell type is functioning, and we found out that we were able to restore really meaningful signal. And the level of vision was quite impressive. So this led us to think that this could be a real therapy. So then we, we, we developed a medical device, goggles, that comprise a camera. Each pixel is responding to changes of light, and they can function from extremely low levels of light to very high levels of light. And these goggles were used to stimulate the retina. And uh, then a clinical uh, safety studies were done to show that all of this was safe, and then a trial was started. But we knew that the type of vision that Patient would get back from that, we were talking about patients that were blind from the disease for many, many years, is uh, first of all, they haven't seen for a long time. And second, this type of vision is not natural vision. So this is where rehabilitation, training, and real life conditions are important. So this is the third part of the technology, is a visual rehabilitation that has to be implemented. And so uh, the first patient in the study was a patient who had been blind for 15 years. He developed a disease when he was a teenager, but eventually when he turned his 40s, he couldn't work anymore. He fell in the subway on the rails and just couldn't stop, had to stop working, and and had not been seen for the past 15 years. Mm -hmm. So we knew that it takes a few months for the treatment to start to function. Uh, because the protein has to be expressed by gene therapy. And then the patient had to learn how to adjust the goggles and had to be trained by a team of our team to see how this works. So it took uh, altogether a bit less than a year between the injection and the time that the patient spontaneously told us, you know what, with the goggles, I'm now able to see the crosswalks. I have not been able to see anything for the past 15 years. And, uh, And he told me recently on a conversation that once he was in his bathroom and he was looking into the mirror and usually he wouldn't see anything into the mirror and he was seeing something white moving with himself and he realized that it was his hair. But the last time he had seen his hair, it was black. And now it was white. <laughs> and so he was able to see that. Yeah. And, and then he, he was telling us a lot of things like that. And then he went through all the training. Can you detect objects? Can you quantify objects? Can you grasp the objects? And he also, he described very well the type of vision he's getting. So it's not normal vision, but this is a useful vision. And it's improving over time.
0: Restoring the power of sight. This is the kind of technology that most people working outside healthcare wouldn't believe possible. Cell and gene therapies are changing the way we think about eye care and other areas of healthcare too, but that's another podcast. The ability to interact with our own DNA, to rewrite our genetic code if you will, opens up an incredible amount of doors for the future. As all three of our guests today told me, we're only at the start of this journey. Before we end, I wanted to know where they thought the most exciting innovations in ophthalmology are going to come from in the near future. So there's a lot of things going on in IK. You mentioned the potential to change the lives of um, millions of people. What specific areas are you most excited about?
2: It's a really, really tricky question, actually, because I can see there is a lot to be excited about in something that sounds a bit bland but just improving how you deliver to the surface of the eye. If you do that, the, the potential benefits for patients are huge. Um, but I am a technologist um, and I do find anything that is really curing blindness to be particularly exciting. So that is the cell and gene therapy. So there are people doing some really exciting things with how you get uh, genes into cells. So that may be through electroporation. Um, That could be through... uh,
0: Electroporation being opening, making a hole in a cell?
2: So that is essentially, yes, you are using electricity to... um, open up the membrane, um, often temporarily and it will close again afterwards, to and allow the, whatever your carrier is to get your genes into that cell and then they can start doing their thing, which may be changing how that uh, cell works um, entirely, it may be meaning it expresses a different protein, it can be, there can be lots of different things and the potential there is, is really big and really exciting.
0: For Pierce, it's AI. If we were to look sort of 10 or 15 years into the future, where do you see ophthalmology and technology going to?
3: I would see two broad sort of trends. This decade, the 2020s, is the decade where we're finally going to figure out how to bring clinical data together for the benefit of our patients. And I imagine a situation where we look back in 2030 and when I'm talking to medical students, I'm kind of like this old fogey who talks about like when I was a doc, the biggest study of diabetic eye disease was 300 patients. And then in 2030, it studies on every single patient with diabetic eye disease in the world and, and massive breakthroughs. And I'll be like someone who's talking about silent movies or black and white movies. The way I see things for the the ophthalmologist of 2030 or the or, or healthcare in 2030, is that when we see patients, those patients will be in front of us or maybe being seen virtually. We'll have a staggering amount of data about the patients. Could have five different types of imaging. We won't have artificial general intelligence which can bring all of that together, but we will be still the human in the loop. Brings that together throws in our experience throws in our human abilities of empathy and communication and hopefully gives the best outcomes for our patients it
0: is however worth mentioning we've mostly been talking about the developed economies of europe north america pockets of asia and australasia so what are the developing economies around the world where for many cataracts can still mean impending blindness what will the future look like there dr sahel had some fascinating thoughts on this the technology that we're talking about obviously is incredible, but clearly requires access to some fairly advanced and expensive machinery. How do you think innovation in eye care is, is going to be able to improve the eye health beyond the sort of the developed world or beyond the reaches of, of high technology?
1: it's a very important question i used to say actually this is one people that know me this is something i keep repeating it's, it's like a, it's like a train if we believe that only the first wagon is important uh, everything is going to just stop so if we don't think about everyone when we develop this we are just not meeting our goals. So it's not like we have a a fixed pot of money and we have to decide who deserves it and who doesn't deserve it. So I used to say we don't have to choose, we have to do both. I mean, we we just have uh, to do both. And uh, the approach for me is that we have to improve access to care globally. And to improve access to care globally, the Good thing of the modern era is all the telemedicine, all the technologies that are enabling us to be able to perform remote testing in many patients. They can mm. be followed with their disease without having to go to meet any specialist. Uh, then uh, the other thing is how to use to analyze the data because the expertise is not everywhere. So there are ways to do remote advice, but also there is a ways to use artificial intelligence for screening, for identifying what patient could be benefiting from this approach or could be warned about any potential issue. We want to be able to offer the therapies of the future to everyone. Actually, the company was just mentioning that we form. They are already thinking about creating a foundation to be able to provide the treatments for low cost for people that can't afford it in countries that don't have the resources for that. So there is a need to work on how can we make sure that this is delivered ethically to everyone. And also the more people are being treated, the less the cost will be.
0: On that optimistic note of a more equitable and just approach to eye care across the globe, it's time to end. Thanks to all our guests, Catherine, Pierce and Jose for all their insight. And to you, of course, for listening. We'll be back next week, where we'll again be looking to the future. This time, with an eye on sustainability, as we ask how much the healthcare industry is currently doing to tackle the climate crisis, and whether we've already reached a tipping point. We'll see you then. Invent Health is a podcast from TTP. It's hosted by me, Matt Millington. When I'm not doing podcasts, I'm also a strategic design consultant at TTP, It was written and produced by Harry Stott. The executive producers were Abby Williams and Sam Zaccarino from TTP and Ollie Judge from Adrift Entertainment.